Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. <clears throat> so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for, this, for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. 
But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Well, some of you might know that I'm a sucker for lists, for top ten lists, for other kinds of lists. And this week on Twitter, there was a trending topic uh, called Seven Favorite Movies. If you're on Twitter, you might have seen that. All sorts of people were talking about their seven favorite movies, hashtag seven favorite movies, right, and putting it on Twitter. And, of course, I love that sort of thing. Like, that's right up my alley. So I put up my seven favorite movies, etc. I'm not going to tell you what any of them are right now for fear of perjuring myself. But I, I did have seven favorite movies on there. You can check Twitter to find out. And as I was thinking about all these different lists and fun things to come up with, um, you know, I, I began to think about this in getting ready for it, the life of Abraham. If there was a Twitter topic called seven most important people, you know, like the seven most important people who have ever lived, then Abraham could without exaggeration be put on that list. You know that three major world religions consider Abraham to be the father or one of the fathers of their faith. Christianity, of course, as well as Judaism and Islam. Um, the non-Christian historian Edward Gibbon, who wrote a lot about the Roman Empire, uh, sensing the importance of Abraham in some of his writing actually credited Abraham with the invention of monotheism. Now, that's obviously not true. Abraham didn't invent monotheism. But it does point to the fact that even people who aren't followers of Jesus see how important of a man on the world stage Abraham is. And so what we're going to do for the coming months together is study the life of this man. And we're going to do it by looking at a large section of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And what we're going to see again and again is that the twin themes of Abraham's life are that God makes gracious promises to him, and he is called to respond in faith. Those are also themes of each of our lives. And so there's so much in Abraham's story that is meaningful and relevant for us. These are major things. And so as we get going this morning, I want you to see that Genesis as a whole is divided up into major sections. And a new section is headed by what we read, for example, in 1127. These are the generations of blank. Now, we see here that these are the generations of Terah, which is Abram's father. And then we see Abram's story. So this is the third big section in the book of Genesis. And it's the first section that sort of moves us forward out of what's called primeval history, early, early history, creation, fall, flood history, into what's called the patriarchal history. That is the history of the three founders of the people of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this is a major transition point where Tracy began reading for us in the book of Genesis as a whole. And it starts off Abraham's tale. And as we summarize together this morning, the main idea of the beginning of Abraham's story, here's how I want to put it for you. God makes gracious promises to Abraham, calls him to trust him, and sticks with him even when he doesn't trust. That's the big point. And what we're going to do is just divide that statement up 
into three parts and use those as our points in the outline together. So first, God makes gracious promises to Abraham. Second, God calls Abraham to trust him. And third, God sticks with Abraham even when he fails to trust. Okay, so there's your outline. There's some note-taking space on the bulletin. If you love that sort of thing, go for it. But we're getting going now. First, God makes gracious promises to Abraham. That's the best way to begin the story. And you might wonder why we began in verse 11, 27, chapter 11, 27, instead of 12, 1. Those are sort of random verses there at the end of chapter 11. But it's worth including those texts in the story because they are the prequel or the prologue, so to speak, of Abraham's life. And what the prologue shows us, if you're a perceptive reader, is that things are very dark. Things are very dark for Abraham and his family before God enters the picture in chapter 12, verse 1. How do we know that? Well, let me show you a couple of things. First, the names of Abraham's family members show us that something is amiss. Names are super important in the New Testament, and you might say they're even more important in the Old Testament. And I hope you saw that Abraham's father's name is Terah. Now, you're not going to know this, but that name actually means moon. And furthermore, the name Sarai means princess, and the name Milcah, the other young lady that is married off to one of Abraham's brothers in this story, means queen. The point is that each of those names refer to the fact of, of lunar worship, of moon worship, of something that the pagan, idolatrous nations of the ancient Near Eastern world regularly participated in. Now, this is the chosen line that God has, to this point in history, worked through. This is the line of Seth, the line of Noah, the line of Shem, the Semitic line. This is the last line, so to speak, of the human race that God has revealed himself to in history. And by the time of Abraham, these people are named after false gods and involved in the worship of false gods. Things are not going well. We also see that things are dark for Abraham in the fact that in verse 30, we read that Sarah was barren. And notice that Moses, the author, re-emphasizes that. She was barren. She had no child. Thanks for rubbing in, Moses, right? And, and the reason that's doubly emphasized is because that's, that's sort of the kink in the armor of all of Abraham's story. All of the promises that God makes to Abraham, as we're going to see, is premised on the fact that he's going to be a father. And yet we read at the very beginning of his story that Sarah is barren. The line is not going to continue. You could say that humanity has come to a dead end by the time God reveals himself to Abram. Sarah is not just literally and physically barren, although she is that, but her barrenness is also a sign of the barren spiritual state of Abram and his family at this point in history. They're cold-hearted people living in a dark, hopeless situation. Listen, here's something you need to know about the Christian scriptures. Just before God begins to work redemption is when things look the darkest. A great, fame, uh, one of my favorite authors, Anne Lamott, you might disagree with a lot of what she writes, but she's got some great things. Here's one thing that she says. When God is going to do something wonderful, he always starts with hardship. When God is going to do something amazing, he starts with an impossibility. 
The human race is at a proverbial dead end here, it seems. And it is into this dark situation that the voice of the Lord, Yahweh, speaks. Verse, 12, verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go. Now, it's no coincidence that God seems to speak out of nowhere here. It's intentionally hearkening back to Genesis 1-1, where God speaks from nothingness and creates everything. Just as God created everything by the word of his power, so here in chapter 12, he begins to recreate the fallen and broken world by the word of his power through his revealing himself to Abraham. He speaks to this man and tells him to go. And then he makes to him in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, four really amazing promises. And we're going to spend more time in the coming weeks looking at these promises. So for now, let's just look at what they are. He says, he will make him a great nation. He will bless him. He will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And he will bless all nations or people groups through Abraham's family. For now, I just want to tell you two things about those promises. First, You've got to get that these are radically gracious promises. I mean, do you notice in the story how God just, boom, out of nowhere, speaks to this man and lays these lavish promises before him? What has Abraham done to deserve or earn or merit God making these promises to him in this way? Nothing. And that's, in fact, the whole point. Abraham sovereignly chooses to reveal himself to God. To Ab- God sovereignly chooses to reveal himself to Abraham and to make these amazing uh, covenant, gracious promises to him. God, just out of his own goodwill, out of the purposes of his inscrutable decree, simply declares to Abraham, I am going to show you mercy. I am going to show you grace. I'm going to to rebuild this shattered world through you and your family. God chooses to actively intervene for Abraham and act for Abraham's benefit, completely irrespective of whether Abraham has done something to be worthy of that or not. You see that? They're radically gracious. And then secondly, these promises are radically powerful. Radically powerful. Remember, all of the promises, to some degree or another, are based on the fact that a child is going to be born, listen, a child is going to be born to a 75-year-old man who has a barren wife. How can Abraham be a great nation when he doesn't even have any children at this point in his existence? Well, that's the whole purpose. God wants you, the reader, to see that with him nothing is impossible. Listen, there's so much we can take from just the very first few verses of Abraham's life. And the reason for that is because Abraham's story is powerful and beautiful because in a sense, it's, it's the prototype of all of our stories. Listen, the way to get out of the darkness of your life, the way to experience a new start in your life, the way to blessings in your life is through the sovereign call of God. It is through the promises that God has made and fulfilled to you. Listen, in the shadows, in the painfully dark moments you may find yourself in, the story of Abraham tells you that God can and will reach you there with his light 
and love. And he does this not because you are worthy or deserving. He doesn't make promises to you because he saw how great you are. He commits himself to you rather despite your failures, despite your guilt. God promises to be for you in Jesus Christ, to be on your side, to make you a part of his family. Indeed, the family of Abraham through the Holy Spirit. Whoa, sorry. I'm getting excited already in point one. Bad idea. And and the only response necessary from you is that you trust the promises to be true, just as God called Abraham to do. Here's another thing we can take, even from the first point. Barrenness in your life will not stop God from reaching you. Barrenness in your life will not stop God from fulfilling his promises. Ask yourself, where are you barren? Where are you hopeless? That is just where the mercy of God is designed to reach. Are you relationally barren? Are you spiritually barren? Are you emotionally barren? Are you physically barren? Just ask yourself, what in my life causes me the most pain? What in my life makes me hopeless? And and then, as the Holy Spirit is at work right now, take a second and face those things and then hear this. Those events or experiences or relationships will not and cannot thwart God from getting to you in grace. That's Abraham's story. And that is also our story. So if it's true that just as God made and kept gracious promises to Abraham, completely out of the blue, irrespective of his, of his deservedness of it, and if that's also true for us, then how should we respond? Well, Abraham's story tells us. We see that God has made gracious promises to Abraham, and then secondly, beginning in verse 4, we see that God calls Abraham to trust him. He calls Abraham, he makes him these covenantal promises, and then he simply asks Abraham to trust his word. And what does Abraham do? Well, he trusts, at least initially. In verse 1, we see the command from God, go, right? And then in verse 4, we see the corresponding obedience from Abraham. So, Abram, by the way, I'm calling him Abraham because later his name gets changed. Abram means dad, You know, daddy, Abraham's big daddy. They're basically the same thing. So I'm going to call him Abraham, okay, so just for uh, clarity's sake. So he obeys in this instance. God tells him to go. Abraham gets up and goes. And, And I want you to see how significant a thing this is, even though it's passed through very quickly by Moses, the author here. What Abraham is doing is leaving all that he knows behind based on this single command from God. Abraham is is leaving his father, Terah. Abraham is leaving his homeland. Abraham, I think we can say, is leaving his false gods, his household gods. He's leaving everything behind. One commentator, Walter Brueggemann, says this, Faith requires a ruthless abandonment of the past. Faith requires a ruthless abandonment of the past. In what sense, perhaps, might God be calling you to leave your former life behind and follow where he is leading you? That's the question that Abraham's story poses to each of us. It reminds me of Tolkien's 
famous early chapters in the Lord of the Rings. I see some of you rolling your eyes, and that's unacceptable, let me just tell you, by the way. Um, when, uh, you know, there's the famous saying, actually from Gandalf, uh, referring to Aragorn the king, that not all who wander are lost, we read. And yet that can also be applied to Frodo. Frodo's got a pretty comfortable existence as a hobbit in the Shire, you know, living it pretty, he's living it up pretty much. He's one of the wealthiest hobbits around. And yet because of the call upon his life that he has to go into a land he does not know, into the unknown, into fear, into uncertainty, he simply gets up and leaves. The journey is certainly not easy. He needs a few uh, dwarves and elves to help him. That might not be extremely relevant for us, but it's still a fun story. The point is, of course, Lord of the Rings speaks truth to us, just as the scriptures here speak the truth to us. Just like Frodo had to go, just like Abraham had to go, so also faith involves us oftentimes going when we're uncertain of what the future might hold. Abraham obeys God when God calls him to trust. We also see that, by the way, in verses 7 and 8, when he worships at these places in the land of Canaan. You read in verse 7 that he built an altar. You read in verse 8 that he built an altar. And notice he does these at significant places, namely in verse 6, underneath or beside a tree. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because trees were places of ancient pagan worship. And so what Abraham is doing here is, as it were, claiming this land for the one true God. These are expressions of trust, expressions of faith. Abraham is acting here in obedience. What can we learn? Well, as I've mentioned, we see an extremely important spiritual reality, an important part of life with the living God. Sometimes the way out of barrenness and hopelessness is to trust God into the unknown. Brueggemann, again, puts it so well. Departure from securities is the only way out of barrenness. What does it mean to trust God? It doesn't, listen, it doesn't just mean believing what he says. It means believing what he says when that believing is hard. It means trusting God and then living in that trust as you face the unknowns of the future of your life. What is God calling you to do? Are you listening? Are you doing it? Are you making decisions based on the circumstances you see or based on what God has promised you? Listen, that is hard for us to do, but it is the very essence of following Jesus, the very essence of faith. Every day we are faced with the question in a multitude of ways. Are you trusting God? And listening to God, or are you governed by fear and doubt? And there's so many examples of that, right, friends? When God calls you to give away time and money and other resources, the question is, do you trust God enough to part with what is important to you? When God calls you to do something radical, like foster a child, or adopt a child, or help start a new church plant, right? Or maybe to even look into your own past and family of origins and history and examine some of the scars and brokenness there so that you can be a healthier person. When all of that's happening, the question is, do you trust God enough to face 
unknown and unanticipated challenges? Do you trust God enough to explore perhaps the pain of your story? Or do you act to protect yourself? God calls Abraham to trust him. And Abraham trusts. He rests in God's promises, even in the face of the unknown. But, but, his trust is not perfect. In fact, it's nowhere close to mature yet. It comes and goes. There are times when it evaporates. And that's what we see in the third point. So we've seen that God has made gracious promises to Abraham, right? And then God has called Abraham to trust him. And Abraham initially does that. He goes when God says to go. He worships God. But then thirdly, we see that God sticks with Abraham even when he doesn't trust. Look in verse 10. Abraham started off well, and then in 10 we read that there's a famine. Now, that's one of those circumstances that we were just talking about that we might look at and it would make us afraid or doubt or wondering how God's going to take care of us in this. And what Abraham does is he goes south, and things literally go south and figuratively go south here. He makes his way to Egypt. And in the Bible, by the way, very rarely do good things happen in Egypt. No offense to any of you Egyptians in the room. It's a redemptive historical theme that we see. Abraham goes south to Egypt. And the author doesn't outright condemn Abraham's behavior here. But if you read between the lines, and if you see what happens in just a few verses, you'll know that here Abraham's faith is wavering. We read that he goes down to Egypt because of the famine, and he anticipates, rightly, what might happen. In verses 11 and 12, he says to his wife, Sarah, I know that you're beautiful. By the way, she's 65 years old, and she's still beautiful. It's an important side point there. You're you're beautiful, a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this is his wife, and then they're going to kill me, but they're going to let you live. So Abraham sees a potential problem, obviously, right? And the way he responds to that is where his problems begin to arise. And we're not exactly sure of all the details here. What's clear is that Abraham is willing to prostitute his wife out to Pharaoh to save his own skin. And what perhaps is even clearer is that the groundspring, the motivating idea behind all of Abraham's behavior, beginning in verse 10 and going through the end of the chapter, is no longer faith. It's fear. It's no longer trust, it's worry. This is the sort of fear that leads Abraham into trouble. It leads Abraham into spiritual blindness. It erodes his prior trust in God. And listen, it can do the same to you and to me. Fear, you see, leads to concern for self above concern for others. Fear leads to an anti-gospel. What you see here is that Abraham is willing to give up Sarah for his sake. Look in verse 13. Say you're my sister, that it may well go well with who? With me, because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. That's the exact reverse of the gospel. The gospel is that God gives up his life for us. Abraham here is saying, you give up your life for me, Sarah. He's not willing to sacrifice himself for her. He's not willing to put himself first. He's not willing to face difficult, unknown situations. No, he makes a rash, foolish, compromised decision based on his fear. It's important to see that all fear, 
all craven fear like this flows out of unbelief in the promises of God. It's worth reflecting on. I mean, this is bad. It's okay to say that. The Bible is not a book of heroes. You'll see that much, much more frequently as we read through the Old Testament together. I mean, Abraham messes up big time here. He lies. He prostitutes his own wife out. And then, not only does he live with it, but he gets rich off of her. You know, he gets more donkeys, more camels, more people. All of this happens because he doesn't trust God's promises to him. He lets fear and not faith dominate. Will you ask yourself something? What is it that you fear? What makes you want to cower and hide in the corner? What makes it hard to see the promises of God for you? Now, I don't mean spiders and scorpions and snakes. Everybody's afraid of those. Every rational person is afraid of those. (laughs) I mean deep fears. What is it for you that leads you to the sort of radical self-preservation tendencies that we see here so tragically in Abraham? Ask yourself, is it fear of the unknown? God, I don't know what life holds for me even tomorrow, school starting tomorrow. God, I don't know who's going to be in my class. I don't know if my teacher's going to be nice. I'm worried. I'm afraid. I don't trust you. You're not taking care of me. Is it fear of rejection? God, if people knew what I was really like, everyone would abandon me and leave me. I'm not going to open myself up relationally to other people. No way. You don't have my best interests in mind in bringing these other people into my life. I need new people, God. Maybe it's a fear of conflict. I know that this conversation needs to happen with my spouse, with my children, with my grandchildren, with my parents. I know that this relationship is fractured, God, but I don't want to have that conversation. I get nervous just thinking about it. My hands start shaking. My mind's confused. My words stumble out. Don't make me do it, God. You aren't looking out for me. I don't want to have conflict issues with this person. Maybe it's fear of being found out. God, if I confess this sin, which has been repeatedly plaguing me, I'm going to be left by myself to rot. Don't make me do it, God. Confession isn't in my best interest. I don't need to come clean. I'm going to keep on hiding and covering up and hiding and covering up. What is it that you fear? Listen, in the midst of your fear, in the midst of Abraham's fear, what we see is that there are consequences, but God does not end it with you. And God did not end it with Abraham. I mean, this is a fairly substantial failure. I think it's fair to say. It doesn't take a PhD in theology to figure that one out. And God doesn't say, you know what, time out. I'm going to make these promises to the next Semitic guy down the line. (laughs) I'm moving on to Nahor. I'm done with you, Abraham. Time out. I'm going to cast Abraham aside. I made a mistake with him. He's not worth it. Let's move on down the line. That's not what God does. God doesn't cut Abraham out and move to another person. What does God do? Well, he gets Abraham out of there. He doesn't abandon him, but he does remove him from this situation. Here's the key. Listen, the promise that God makes to Abraham and the promises that God makes to us in Jesus are not revoked by our failures. 
God's covenant faithfulness stands firm. God's call is still there. God's grace is ever present. Abraham can screw up royally and not be cast aside by God. And you can screw up royally. Guess what? You have screwed up royally. And so have I. And that doesn't mean we're going to be cast aside by God. How is it that that is possible? Well, it's not because God is God is like a parent who sees his children coloring with crayons or markers on the couch and just sort of looks over it because he doesn't want to deal with the fallout. God isn't a parent who just sort of sweeps our sins and failures under the rug and covers his eyes like this. No, God is just. God does punish rebellion and wrongdoing and evil. God doesn't let wickedness slide. Well, then how can God be just and not condemn Abraham here? Well, the reason that God doesn't cast Abraham aside when Abraham fails is because God pardons Abraham's guilt through Jesus Christ, his son. Let me put it this way. God doesn't cast Abraham aside when Abraham fails because God did cast Jesus aside even though he didn't fail. And God doesn't cast you aside when you fail because God cast aside his son, Jesus, even though he never failed. The reason that Abraham can continue in God's good promises is because he is forgiven. It is because through Jesus, the coming Messiah, he is counted righteous. God doesn't sweep Abraham's sin or our sin under the rug. God remains faithful, however. The only way he can do that is because he punishes Jesus in our place. See, God makes promises to broken, sinful, fallen, corrupt people. And when their broken, sinful, fallen, corrupt selves do broken, sinful, fallen, corrupt things, we still have assurance and security from God that his promises are irrevocable. But it's not because we've had to work our way back into his good graces. It's because Jesus has already done all the work and earned and merited the favor of God. So that when you connect with Jesus by faith, when you are united with him, God looks at you And rather than seeing you as an abysmal failure, rather than seeing you as a royal screw-up, he sees you through the lens of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So that's what Abraham's story is pointing us to here. The extent to which God will go to keep his promises of grace to us is measured in the love of Jesus for sinners at the cross. Bruce Waltke, in his book on Genesis, writes, the call of Abraham is the sneak peek of the rest of the Bible. And the reason he writes that is because Abraham learns again and again the lesson of the gospel. And through Abraham's story, we are called to learn and believe the lesson of the gospel, which is simply this. Jesus' work for us is what secures God's promises to us. Jesus' work for us is what secures God's promises to us. In Jesus, God makes and fulfills gracious promises to us through Abraham. In Jesus, God calls us to trust him. And in Jesus, God will always stick with us, even in those moments when we mess up and fail to trust. Do you believe that? Believe it this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have 
told us stories, stories that aren't made up, fabricated stories, stories that are true, stories that really did take place, but stories that nevertheless reveal to us uh, the dark recesses of our own hearts as well as the glories of our hearts. Thank you that in Abraham's life we see the truth that anytime someone is going to experience new life, it's because you first have called them out of darkness. Thank you that in Abraham's life we see the truth that you call us to trust you even when our circumstances would seem to dictate to us otherwise. And thank you, God, that because of Jesus, your son, when we fail to trust, when we fail to believe, you are still there for us, with us, assuring us of your love and your promise-keeping faithfulness. And you do that because Jesus did what we don't do. Jesus succeeded where Abraham failed and where we have failed. So, Father, turn our eyes to Jesus and help us to trust him. Turn our hearts to Jesus and help us to rest in him and love him. Turn our ears to Jesus that we might hear him when he calls, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy. For my burden is light. Help us, Father, even this morning to return again in faith to the good shepherd of our souls. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The remainder of our service each week is an opportunity for you to respond to the gospel. We're going to sing a song. Uh, of response here in just a moment. We're going to take an offering. We're going to celebrate communion together. And 